You're listening to Hendrikus Devan talking with humans. Hey Harry, how are you? I'm I'm all right. I'm um, tired and looking forward to my holiday next week, but I'm doing all right. Mm. How are you? Well, I'm also very tired and very busy, but that holiday will do me good. Yeah, I haven't been on holiday for like maybe three three years. Yeah. Thereabouts. Well, it depends on what you count as a holiday. I don't think I've been anywhere in three years. Taupo? Yeah, that was about two years ago, I think. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, that was like a yeah family holiday. Mm. How do you feel about family holidays? Um, I feel like they're important, but they're not really a holiday holiday, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think they're, um, that being said, not every holiday is designed to be like relax and unwind sort of thing. Um, but I think that's the sort of holiday that with the lifestyles that you and I lead are kind of um, partially what we need sometimes. So like family holidays for me, I think I enjoy them. They're just not a substitute to standard holidays, if that makes sense. No, that like makes sense. Um, They're like a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, you know, like everybody's time is finite and our parents are all getting older, blah, 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 blah. Um. And I think it's important to spend time with them, I guess, like quality time and do stuff like um, because dad and I have been talking about like going out and doing some father son stuff for years and we just never really. It never really happens, does it? No, I mean, it requires either of us to like get enough diligence to organize something or whatever. And it's like we all, you know, got our own shit going on. So like a family holiday is kind of like a good, convenient, condensed way to spend some quality time with family and then uh you know everybody goes on their merry way again Mm. yeah you kind of have to just say this is happening now and uh you are invited because if you don't really say it then it will just never happen i find it's like it's so hard to maintain relationships as i'm getting older oh for sure yeah i mean even like people that I'm quote unquote best friends with. I don't know if we still use that word at 30, but, um, but like people that I feel close with and, you know, like, uh, I mean, I see you every day cause we live together, but, uh, like my family, I see, I don't know, once a fortnight roughly on average. Mm, maybe more. Yeah. Well, it depends if I'm working with uh, dad on something, it'd be like, oh, yeah. you know, but, um, but on average, uh, lately I think about, yeah, once a fortnight or so. And then, uh, most of my friends are overseas. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I probably talk to people like once a month or something of that, if I remember oh, that's to stay in touch. Good. <laughs> I mean, that's like my closest friends though. Yeah. No, I I feel a little bit awkward when I I visit Hungary and and I'm so ready to have some social interaction and I realize oh but I haven't really talked to these people for a that year must be or a female two. thing because like us guys are just like oh man I haven't seen you in like four years we should I hang mean, out 
when I do meet my friends, we kind of just pick up where we left off. But I don't know. I, I just stopped being friends with them after a while, I, I think. Yeah, I get that. It's just, there's a lot of... There's definitely people I've grown apart from and um, and also people I uh, reconvene with at later dates that I realized that I had less in common with than I originally did. Or, or other times people that I reconvene with after long absences that I find that I have substantially more in common with than I did before. But, mm. um, but yeah, I think for me the biggest thing is just the geographic, uh, like, I mean, I've got some friends locally, but, uh, you know, we're all pretty busy and we live 40 minutes apart and 40 minutes doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, that's how long it takes to take the tube anywhere in London, for example, but it's inconvenient enough, but it's the same in London. It's inconvenient enough. If you have to catch the tube to catch up with someone, no one's got two hours spare to go have but a cup of coffee, is, you know, that's the tube and you it's, it's available most of the time and you can go to a bar and then take the tube home. As in, in hung, not Hungary, and in New Zealand, you have to drive everywhere because there's no... I would argue that driving is more available. The only problem is I can't go out for a couple of drinks. That's the. That's what I'm saying because a lot of social interactions are surrounded by food and drinks. Yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, definitely an issue. Um, that being said, we haven't really been in the income bracket to go out and have drinks lately anyway, but... Yeah. Um, uh, for a bit of context, uh, we lived off around just shy of 20,000 New Zealand dollars a year between us for a couple of years. It's uh, it's getting a lot better this year, um, but it's been uh, lean to say the least. <laughs> um, we had weeks where we prioritized dog food over our own food, but oh, uh, yeah. it's, um, I don't know, I think adversity builds character or something like that, or at least I'll tell myself that enough that I don't feel bad about it. Well, I believe you're right. <laughs> I definitely didn't have, I didn't come prepared because I was raised in a total different way, in a relatively middle class way. And I, I wasn't ready for what we went through. Yeah. I mean, I grew up pretty working class as far as it goes. So I guess we just come from a slightly different class background and stuff as well. Uh, yeah. Although I think, so it was pretty difficult, but it also gave me a good frame as to what to strive for. I think the thing is as well, like um, if you don't have the level of adversity that we have, the victories just don't feel like victories in the same way. Like it's not oh, yeah. like, you know, like when you get a job through – um, I know you're under NDA for the other job, so I won't uh, mention what it is, but like, that's quite a large sum of money for the amount, you know, the period of time that you're working on it. But if you hadn't had adversity, that would probably still equate to about the minimum amount of money you would want for that amount mm -hmm. of time spent on something. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, so like it's, it's changed your perspective in a pretty positive way overall. And it also I means that if shit hits the fan, it doesn't hurt as much to go back to that because it's because not I like- Because I know that already. Exactly. Like you can survive in there. that um, in that situation. Making it sound a lot more extreme than it was. Like we were fine, but uh, but yeah, like uh, it was pretty much like student living except I was 
an adult and not a student anymore. Yeah. Um, but that's probably how plenty of people live, really. Like, if you work minimum wage, you're not much better I don't think our situation off. is unique at all. It's just unique to us because this is the first time that we had. Yeah, I think it was unique in New Zealand in the sense that um, in the times that I've been in between employment, I was not eligible for an unemployment benefit. Um, or I may have been, but administratively it was a fucking nightmare because uh, you're not on your permanent residency yet and um, you're here on a partnership visa. So even if I was eligible for it, it wouldn't look great on a permanent residency application. No. So um, I guess we kind of had a little bit of- um, Just have to pull through. Yeah, well, I mean, it was kind of pride in a sense, but partially forced pride, I guess, maybe <laughs> a little bit. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just like, that system is designed for very like, if you don't check these boxes, we don't know how to deal with you kind of thing. Um, so it just wasn't really very accessible for us. Um, so yeah, we were actually living off less money than a couple on welfare would be living off of. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah. Which means that if we were both permanent residents in New Zealand and we lived and, and shit hit the fan, we'd actually never be worse off than we were during those years that we went through. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, I reckon that's, um, you know, if you can survive off less than the unemployed population of your, uh, you know, uh, society, yeah. civilization. I always um, think of that um, podcast episode with uh, Ethan and Ela where they talk about how they uh, they were dirt fucking poor and they had to like sell weed and stuff to just, just to make ends meet. And I mean... Luckily, we didn't have to go there, but oh my goodness, I felt so sympathetic when I was listening to that. But it was just nice to know that there is a way up from that. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely been in situations where uh, I wasn't sure if and how we were going to pull out of them without borrowing money. Like, um, I feel like um, overall just the way my brain works, I'm a little bit less optimistic about that stuff than you are. Mm. Uh, Cause you know, you'll be like, Oh, we'll just pay double rent next week. And I'm like, but, but if we can't pay double rent next week, our problem is literally twice as bad next week than it is this week. Like, yeah, it's just a different like approach to the, to the problems. I think I'm just a little bit more like autistic about shit or something. You know, I think part of it might be because of how I grew up. Like, Obviously, this was a new situation for me, but I think I kept my general um, approach that I used to have before I was very poor. So I was just like, I was kind of in the mindset but that there's always enough money. Even when there is not, I just, I think, yeah, we're going to get money. And it's just my... That's how I think. Yeah. I mean, like... And we did. You weren't wrong, but at the same time, like, that could easily be perceived as being very naive and a dangerous way to live. But um, but yeah, again, like... it doesn't really change... It doesn't change the reality. No. Um, I mean, it does if you're budgeting, I guess, but it just depends on how you look at the problem, really. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just pretty hopeful about the future. Oh, we're definitely on the right path now. Like... I mean, 
we're only living off of about 40 grand a year, which is still half of fuck all. You know, I think it's going to be closer to 50 now. Yeah. Um, we have some big like business costs coming up though. Yeah. So like by the time it comes to actual like quote unquote take home pay, mm. um, it's probably closer to 30 still between us because uh, we've been- I'm curious uh, what it's going to be. Yeah. Because th- it's hard to sort of say how much you're earning because we reinvest a lot. Like yeah. um, we'll buy like, you know, computer stuff or camera stuff or whatever, you know, like or uh, or take business trips or whatever. But like you have to subtract that before you say what you earn a yeah. year, I guess. Uh, and then tax comes off on top of that. Like, I don't know, being self-employed, like until you start making baller money. It sucks. Yeah, like, you know, like if you tell someone, oh, you know, I charge $50 an hour, I charge $100 an hour, they're like, oh, man, I wish I earned $100 an hour. And it's like, motherfucker. I don't earn that much. <laughs> like, do you understand, like, it's not just unbillable hours because unbillable hours are one thing, but we own between us, I'm going to say, like, close to $30,000. Well, we don't own that, but we use mm-hmm. close to $30,000 worth of equipment. And that stuff all has a life cycle between two to five years that it gets cycled. So that's like a constant cycling ongoing cost that every five years we spend approximately $30,000 on equipment. And um, so that's removed from the yearly yeah. income. Um, and then there's all the unbillable hours, you know, like the networking. So many subscriptions. Oh, and subscriptions. Oh yeah. Like, cause you got um, Google drive, you've got uh, Dropbox. Capture One. Capture Photoshop. One, Photoshop. Um, Everything really. Yeah, and then, I mean, basic day-to-day stuff, which isn't business-related, like Netflix and Spotify, and um, but even, you know, and then for our work, we need a massive internet cap because capped internet is still a thing in New Zealand. So, um, but just, that's um, not really complaining because I do really enjoy the freedom of being self-employed um, because having a boss uh, is not for everyone. But... Um, yeah, it's it's definitely not something I do because I'm financially better off doing so. No. Um, eventually, we very well may be financially better off. But even then, you could argue that if you had a similar corporate career, you'd probably still be financially better off in that corporate career than running your own business. That is true. Because, you know, like you're working your way up through your industry, but if you worked your way up through some corporate career with the same amount of dedication, you'd probably still be earning double of what you will uh, when you make it to the top of this industry. Unless you become like, you know, like an A-list in your... But um, but even then, A-listers make less than people think they do. Oh, yeah, they do. There's like 20 people in each industry that make all the money and then everyone else makes fuck all. Yeah. Uh, to be fair, I don't think I charge enough and I could be charging more, but I don't know. I will learn eventually. Yeah. I just need to work. The thing is, you've only been in that career for such a short amount of time that it feels disingenuous to charge more because you haven't like right? proven yourself enough yet. And I, I know that a lot of people who are not as good as me charge way more than me. And it feels kind of like, uh, I would kind of deserve that money. But at the same time, I, I, I can't really say thing. that I've been doing this for enough time. Like, I, I've been through the same thing in the film industry. And I think it comes down to two things, not just. So it's like the quality of your work. 
But I would argue that the quality of your work is not actually the main determining factor in how much you're worth. I think how much you're worth is how like brutally reliable you are. Like if you have been through the wars, so, so let's take it from a film, film set perspective, right? Like, um, say I'm in the lighting department and my work is absolutely beautiful, but there's some like electrical error and I blow a whole bunch of bulbs and I don't have enough to replace all the spares and pull us through a night shoot that we only have one shot at. Like that is earning my stripes, you know, like, so like if yeah. you get a job that's like some important front page shit, whatever you have a one week to do it and there's like a hundred hours worth of work and you pull that out of your house and you do it and you do it right first time and you meet the deadline, that's when you're worth yeah. the hourly rate. And that's not just doing it once, that's being known to be able to do that. Like I think that in the entertainment industry, like it's not just about being the best, it's about having the best track record for doing well every single time that you're asked to do something. I think yeah. that's where the money comes in and that's where – you know, That's, reliable is so much yeah. more important than there's plenty of good artists, but you know, it's really hard to get to a point where you are able to do it. I've been trying really hard, but I think I still have a lot to learn. Oh, there's a lot of networking and stuff as well. And also location is a big thing. Mm. Like if I want to make it as a screenwriter, like I can write screenplays right now and I can probably sell a couple of them. And I mean, I'm getting paid to write something right now, but if I want to like make it quote unquote as a screenwriter, I need to be in LA. There is literally no other option. Like you need to be in LA and you need to take a PA job. That's like way, way, way below your skill set to network like face to face with human beings. Um, and neither of us are in that position right now and we may never be in that position and that's mm. fine. But that just means that we have to work so much harder than everybody else to be able to break through uh, and have to, you know, be known so much more for our work ethic and all that. Like it has to um, not just our, the quality of our work, but we just have to be known as getting the it done. The people you can trust. Yeah. Like if someone gives you something, you get it done and you make sure that it's right first time. And I know that's... Um, not realistic 100% of the time, especially not early on in your career, but that's what you're aspiring to. Because as soon as you can be that person, you don't have to be that person immediately, but as soon as you yeah. can be that person, just practice. That's when you can charge because then you have value. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, it's, you know, like no, artists I, I are a dime it. a dozen. No, it's super important. I, uh, well, I'm kind of on the receiving side of that now with a job and it's it's quite challenging because um like i put a lot of effort into communication and i think part of my appeal with my regular clients is that like we really really get each other and i i try to be always available and accommodating and stuff and it's just very hard when i'm not on the same same level with a person in terms of our our need for communication and and uh, performance and yeah i don't know like i i'm definitely aware that i i don't like this in an artist so i strive to be 
someone that I personally would like. And that's, yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty high bar. I think as well, though, like a lot of what we do as a social politics and stuff, like it's so important in both of our industries, really. And um, until you get to a high enough level, I think one of the hardest things to do and something that I've failed a few times at is learning to eat shit yep. and just shut the fuck up and do your work. Um, so much of that. <laughs> but um, that's challenging, but also necessary. Absolutely. I've burnt a few bridges by not doing that. And um, I don't necessarily regret any of the decisions that I made, but um, things might have panned out differently if I didn't make those decisions, I guess. Mm. No, I get it. I I did it a lot. And I think I don't really like to, to make any um, New Year's promises, but I think my my promise for the new year for myself is that eat a little bit less shit because I feel like I ate a lot and um, I'm at a point at the moment that I, I work with such amazing people that it's not really, really necessary for me to eat as much shit as I used to. Yeah, I think the um, big caveat though is- um, Like I will still stay humble and Yeah, and I don't think it's that. Self. I think it's like- only eat shit if they're paying you adequately to do so. Yeah, be it in financial. Because I reckon just no matter what experience. level you get to, periodically you just have to eat shit in this industry. It's just how it is because, you know, you don't want to be the weakest link on any team. Ah. Um, regardless of how shitty the people are that you work with sometimes. Uh, not saying you specifically, I'm just speaking like, the royal you, you know, like, um, cause I, I've worked with people before that, um, I don't know. I don't want to say lesser artists cause that sounds arrogant, but they just, I don't know, had different motivations than I do entering, uh, work, I guess. Um, and egos. Um, yeah, I definitely have that. I'm working on it. An ego. Yeah. I have very little ego. When Publicly, I I'm trying to be very humble, but um, uh, my ego gets to me sometimes. Interesting. I'm the opposite. Like, I'm incredibly self-deprecating in my work. Like, uh, I think most of it is in my head, but I definitely notice sometimes. Yeah, I think it's um, probably not necessarily a bad thing to have some ego like i'm trying to be more proud of the work that i do lately like i'm making a conscious effort to feel pride in my work yeah um but that's like not really at the level that i would call an ego because if you have to make conscious effort to not feel like shit about everything you produce uh, i think that doesn't classify as ego <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, um, it's probably better for your mental health to be at least somewhat happy with the work that you're producing, exactly. but if you're too happy with the work that you're producing, then I guess that stunts growth. So you just got to try and find that healthy balance for you. Yeah. Sometimes I get really happy, but it's not necessarily because I'm so happy with what I did. It's kind of like a manic thing. 
Oh, yeah, the manic thing for sure. Like sometimes <laughs> I nail something on something I'm working on and I'll just be like yes, super happy and then I'll crash horribly the next exactly. day. But um, but yeah, I think being too hard on yourself is not great either because like like I'm working on this writing project at the moment. I've been hired to write a, a screenplay um, and like – I was feeling good about it. Like I was pulling the story apart and it was coming along and uh, I really felt like I was onto something. Um, and then I started typing out the scenes and nothing was coming. I was like, oh my God, what the fuck have I done? I've already been paid in advance on this job, which <laughs> I've spent on rent money. Um, uh, and you can't really say that, oh yeah, sorry, this did not quite work out. No, because I've already been paid in <laughs> advance, you know. Like, I mean, I could like contractually do that, but it wouldn't be yeah. great for my career. Uh. Um, but um, but yeah, and then like I went into deep, dark, crippling depression for like three days. But then I pulled out of it and realized like what I'd been doing wrong. And then I felt good about it again because I figured out why I was going wrong. And I came up with a new strategy, which I'm currently implementing and haven't fallen off the ledge yet. Good job. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's sort of like, it's hard to find that balance because if I wasn't critical on myself, I would have continued writing the garbage that I was writing and I would have handed in something which would have been worse than my career, uh, worse for my career than not handing in anything at all, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, um, yeah, it's tricky. Like that whole self editing process, I think is the hardest part about being a self-employed artist. Like that's sometimes why I envy people that work in like a studio system or something, you know, like when you have someone looking over your shoulder and they're like, Oh, that shit, throw it away, start again. Because like, if you do that by yourself, you really start to think about like the amount of time you've invested in things. And But if you have a boss, you don't have a choice. You're just like, oh, I guess we're throwing that away and we're starting again. Yeah. I had so many times when I just, I finished something and I thought, ah, maybe, maybe this is a no from me. I should just start again. But I don't know. Eventually I started to learn to accept that I am not the best I can be yet. I think the hardest thing is like when you're deciding whether or not you're going to start something again is being experienced enough to know whether yeah. you have to start again or not. Sometimes I just try to like, so I work with a lot of layers and I try to kind of unpack what I did and lessen the effect of certain things and just work backwards a little bit, just tone it down. Cause sometimes I go a little too far and best case uh, scenario, I, well, I always work non-destructively, but I don't know how it works in your case with the writing and stuff. Like everything has to tie in together and my work is a little bit more dynamic in that sense. Yeah, it's it's not really a comparable process. No? Uh, Cause I mean, one, one is like a maximum one day procedure and the other one yeah. is like a three to 18 month procedure. Like it's a, yeah. uh, and also one is like, you know, technical and the other one is purely hypothetical, uh, I guess. I guess it depends on how you write, but uh, the way that I write, it's, um, I don't really put things on cards and stuff like a lot of other writers do. Like there's no way how of me. I don't know. So like a lot of writers will um, plot out their whole film or story or whatever um, and put it on like index cards and then mm -hmm. you can like, and, and that oh, basically yeah. just says what each scene is about. 
Um, although when they say that, it actually means what each sequence is about because a sequence can be a string of scenes that falls under a single card. Um, but basically by laying out, the average movie has 40 to 50 cards. Um, so laying out those cards on a table, you can very quickly read the story as yeah. like a, you know, like a visual hole in front of you. And shuffle stuff around if need be. Exactly. Which um, you can't really do in a linear. No, unless you well, are very, can, very, very into the story in your head. Like if you know the story inside out, you you know where everything is. But um, but trying to find the headspace to do that um, when you're also trying to deal with day-to-day life is challenging because mm-hmm. that requires or at least for me, I mean, some people are geniuses, but that requires like 100% of my mental faculty to be able to really do like decent quality editing. Possibly stupid question, but do you reread what you have already a lot? Or Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, because ADHD and I don't read well, um, I don't do it every single day. Yeah. But if I'm sitting down for a serious writing session, I'll read at least back like the last sort of four or five pages that I've written. Um, If I'm, I try at least once a week to reread from the start, Mm -hmm. but um, that doesn't always happen because I don't know, impulse control and stuff. (laughs) Do you have any notes on like a character's personal stuff just so that you don't contradict yourself somewhere? No, that's, um, some people do, but I, uh, this is what I'm talking about. Like mental faculties, like this is why writing is so exhausting and so all consuming because all of that stuff kind of needs to live in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, like for a TV show, you might have like a, a show Bible, you know, like, um, because there's multiple writers oh, and they yeah. need to be able to like fact check stuff or whatever. But, um, for a feature film, or at least for me, it lives mostly in my head. Um, because there's just there's things that exist in certain scenes that just kind of happen in the natural course of writing the scene and then to like have to cross-reference all of that and write a character bible um i don't know maybe it'd be helpful but it'd only really be helpful if someone's doing a rewrite at which point though they should probably get into the script enough in their own head to know the characters well Mm -hmm. enough to not contradict themselves as well if they're uh if they're competent writers, it's part of the job, I guess, to be able to to make the world exist inside of your own head. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. It's also exhausting. Are there any writers that kind of like the writer equivalent of method actors or, or is that not a thing? How do you mean? Oh, like, you know, how those actors get like really into the character and don't even break it and... Like they completely embody. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know how that would manifest on the writer's side. Not I'm just wondering if that's quite a thing. in the same way. Um, there's definitely writers that do substantially more research than is universally considered as necessary. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So, like, there's basically this running thing in the film industry where method actors. You can't really argue with the results when they're good, but at the same time, they generally make a less desirable work environment for everyone else. Um, So in the same way that if you are playing in some New York movie prostitute number three, if you go out 
and do like a month's worth of like talking to hookers on the street and like trying to really embody the lifestyle and like intense research that's an unnecessary amount of research for the role that you have to play because you're only on screen for five seconds and no one gives a fuck right so we agree on that there's writers that do that amount of research into a screenplay and sometimes those screenplays turn out brilliant but i don't think they turn out brilliant because of the research that being said that's probably just their artistic process and like they just need to get into the headspace to be able to write well but um if you have enough craft you can make up for not doing that. But um, it's not to say that you're not a good writer. Uh, if you don't have that craft, you can totally do it. But the craft can generally make up for massive amounts of research. I mean, there's definitely exceptions to that. Um, like anything that's about a real person or a historical drama or whatever, you know, uh-huh. you want to do like proper, proper research with interviews and stuff. But I don't know. I'm not really an expert on this field at all. Uh, I'm not uh, particularly oh, yeah. qualified to just speak on it. thought I would it. ask just in case you know. I have ideas on it, but uh, none of those are really based on anything, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, that's fine. Just um, pop to the kitchen for a second and grab my bottle. Yeah. And we're back. Yay. <laughs> Short uh, stop to the kitchen to grab the whiskey. Oh, it's raining really heavily. Yeah, the storm's been kind of coming in and out. It doesn't really properly feel like summer yet. But, uh, it kind of just came out of nowhere. I can't really smell that one from here. The Which one was the one uh, that smelled This like is not scotch. Um, this but is uh, bourbon, which is nowhere near as aromatic. Uh, what you're thinking of is the Laphroaig, yeah. which um, smells like a burning Band-Aid factory. It's really intense. Yeah, I think the, um, like how aromatic, I mean, Laphroaig is probably one of the most like strong smelling whiskeys in existence. Okay. Um, Like you can get a bottle of Jameson's and add like a tablespoon of Laphroaig to it and a whole bottle of Jameson's will taste smoky. I tried a sip once and it just felt like, first of all, it was super potent. And also my mouth just smelled like, I had a whole bonfire in there. That's what it's supposed to taste like. (laughs) It tastes like a burning Band-Aid factory. Yeah. With a little bit of burning light rubber and oil mixed in. But but yeah, Yeah, I guess. I really like it. I like my Islay whiskeys. I feel like Islay whiskeys are pretty um, polarizing though. Like it's really one of those things you either love it or you hate it. Like, um, Do you want to try any Japanese whiskeys at all? Um, yeah, I'm not opposed to it. Like, apparently some of them are pretty good, but, um, you know, there's a, there's a saying that the, the Scottish invented whiskey and the Japanese mm-hmm. perfected it. Um, that being said, I haven't really drank any Japanese whiskey, so I don't have a personal opinion on it yet. Um, my general vibe from it is that it's maybe a little bit too clean. Cause I think yeah, what, that's I, what I thought a little bit more polished and yeah, because um, you know how like when someone, so if someone doesn't really drink whiskey, you can tell if someone's not a real whiskey drinker when they try your whiskey and they're like, hmm, that's really smooth. Because smooth is not really like the primary thing that you're looking for <laughs> no. in a whiskey. Um, I mean, you obviously don't want it to be like lead bathtub, like how my throat is burning for the wrong reasons, but um 
But yeah, you want it to have some character, you know, like, um, and if the first note that you get is smooth, it's probably a very boring whiskey overall. <laughs> to be fair, I'm always looking for alcohol that is smooth because I just can't really take the... Yeah, you're not a whiskey drinker no, though, I'm and that's not. fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, um, you know, like a lot of people will go out and spend like 200 bucks on a bottle of McKellen and um, probably taste good, but for $200, like you can buy a lot of things that taste substantially bitter. Um, but yeah, McKellen's just a very like smooth drink, I guess. Um, but yeah, when I can't afford to drink the Islay scotches that I like, I... Uh, been getting into bourbon recently because mm. it's uh i used to hate bourbon but that's because i used to drink like sub 35 dollar bottle bourbon and it was awful um so now i can spend like 40 to 50 maybe 60 dollars on a bottle of bourbon as opposed to like 75 to 130 dollars on a bottle of scotch so it's you know it's a lot more cost effective no that makes sense i just I'm not really into um, more refined um, taste profiles. <laughs> like I can't really taste the difference anyway. Yeah, I'm kind of into food, eh? Like a um, yeah, food, yeah, but but I feel like food drinks. and beverages are kind of like that. That all comes into one sort of general category for me. Like, um, I mean, I like alcohol because it's an intoxicant, but I like it for more than just that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it falls into the whole like food and beverage thing for me. Like I was going to be a chef. That was my first like serious career choice before I pivoted into uh, film and television. And the only reason why I pivoted was because I worked in the hospitality industry for a while. And, uh, at least back then, I don't know what it's like now, but uh, it was a pretty fucking horrible work environment because everybody was overworked, underpaid and, undervalued basically um and the only way to get through it was to have a a, a very um sturdy meth addiction or something you know (laughs) like a well-managed meth addiction or uh, but then i don't know how they were paying for that because anyway the hours were crazy the pay was bad and um it was a very high stress work environment and i was like well i enjoy the high stress work environment because i actually thrive in that sort of environment I just don't enjoy getting paid eight dollars fifty an hour to be in this <laughs> no environment. Shit. Yeah. So, um, without really thinking about it intentionally, I ended up in the film industry, which is that same high stress environment. You just happen to get paid a hell of a lot more for being there. Yeah, if you get paid. If you get paid, I've done many, many, many hours of unpaid work. Same. Oh man, I was on the shoot like, I think my first professional shoot out of film school was an unpaid job on a um, New Zealand Film Commission short film. And that was like a five day shoot. Unpaid. Unpaid. Um, Ten and three quarter hour days plus some overtime. And um, I think half of it or just over half of it because five days, I think three days of it were night shoots. Oh shit. Um, yeah, now we do a lot of unpaid work in the film industry to break through. I don't know what it's like overseas, but at least in New Zealand, you do so much free work to get to. I mean, it's not really comparable to what I do, but we also do a lot of unpaid work and it's, and because of the accessible nature of what I do, 
um, it's kind of like other people think that, oh, so they do it unpaid. It must not be worth much. Yeah. You don't do like 60 hours in a week unpaid work though. Uh, no. Um, well, according to my- Or at least they feed us on those shirts, I guess. Statistics. Because <laughs> I just looked at my statistics the other day. I did about um, 200 hours of unpaid work this year, which is not that bad. Cause, That's because, not bad at all. Because uh, in the previous years, I did- m- Many times that much. When you say unpaid work, that's uh, quote unquote collaborations, yeah? Yeah. Which is essentially um, portfolio pieces. Uh, Yeah. Although sometimes um, I do collaborations and by the time it comes out, I don't really like it anymore. I share because I want to support the team I work with, but sometimes it's just like, yeah, yeah. I don't even know if it's about you not liking it anymore. It's just like it no longer fits your personal brand. Yeah. To, uh, and that, but, um, my main focus is my like, cause I suppose like you're still very much a baby in your industry really. Yeah. And like your taste and your skill level is changing so rapidly because you're so, exactly. um, so early on in your career. Cause it's kind of amazing how far you've gotten in your career considering where you, actually are right now like i don't mean to take away from it i absolutely oh, no. don't because i uh, i'm very very proud of how fast you've moved but um yeah it's it's kind of crazy how quickly it's happening now like because uh, i feel like we're gonna go from you know 20 grand a year to probably 100 grand a year and in, in an under a five-year period between the two yeah and that's a pretty massive like um Oh, it's amazing. Class shift, you know, like uh, that's a uh, that's a ladder that normally only exists within union-based work if that. Mm. I think um like I don't know the exact reason why I'm progressing in in this pace, but I think a lot of it is because I try to be really really fucking nice to everyone and I network a lot and I just get recommended so much. I think that goes a long way. Like I don't think it's purely because of the quality of my work. I think it's the other people enjoy working with people that are not dicks. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um <laughs> well, that being said, sometimes I'm a dick. That's I try still, not to be. Um, that's still always secondary to the quality of work and that's always secondary to how reliable you would someone think is. So but sometimes I don't feel like the quality is enough. Yeah, but but hear me out. So, like, not being a dick is one thing, but um, that's uh, not the same thing as being an excellent marketer or a social engineer because there's people in my industry and people in your industry that are kind of shit at what they do. They're just really, really, yeah. really fucking good in a room. I got to respect that. <laughs> and um, that's not about not being a dick. That's just – that's a whole other skill set no. on itself, like – it's not to take away from those people either because I used to envy those people because I'm like, I'm actually better at doing what you do than you are. But then it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. You're still the one getting the job. And regardless of how you're getting the job, I can't deny the fact that you're getting the work, you know, like, yeah. and I got to respect that. So, no, that's true. But I feel like that's sort of its own special skill set. I don't think mine is really super strong, to be honest. Like, I don't have that really, um, I don't know, like killer sales instinct, you know, like that's not in me. <laughs> me neither. I'm really bad at selling myself, but I 
I recognize that and I try to approach my work relationships in a different way. I just, I try to be kind and accommodating and someone they can trust, trust their work with. And I don't know why um, I don't really approach people with the promise of work. I just try to try to get close to people that I respect and I like their um, public persona. Like if I can see that, ah, oh, we we're, would click, I would probably. Yeah. I mean, like if you want to break it down from a third party or like, you know, bird's eye view kind of perspective, yeah. um, that's kind of the basis of where marketing's going anyway now though, because nobody wants to be sold anything directly. Yeah. I think marketing is definitely changing with social media. It's kind of like, because have you noticed like on Facebook, I don't know, like I don't scroll Facebook that much, but every now and then I scroll Facebook and it's mostly like ads or sponsored posts. And I don't read the comments on my friends' posts anymore. I specifically go to the comments on the sponsors' posts because I'm really curious as to how people are treated as a result of paying to promote their content. And nine out of 10 times, every time someone's doing paid placement marketing, they get ripped to shreds. Like people have got zero fucking time for that now. Like even if they have a good product, people are just like, you paid to have this on my consumption wall. (laughs) Fuck you. And then they find something to fight about, you know, like people want to be outraged by everything. And it just so happens that that's actually affecting the marketing industry, which is really interesting. Yeah. And that's why I don't have a Facebook wall anymore. Well, I don't have a feed. And I hit everything from my wall, so I don't have a wall either. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I made the mistake in the last few days of reading some comment sections on news articles. No. And it's like, man. I have no idea what's happening in the world because I used to just gain my news from Facebook. I have no yeah, fucking clue. Kind and I feel so good. <laughs> mostly stopped consuming news as well. And I also feel good as a result. But sometimes I just do it without realizing. Like I still come across news on Reddit. But, but um, like when's the last time you read a comment section on something like that? Like the cognitive nah. dissonance that is going on in society is mind blowing. I'm sorry. I am not mentally capable of involving myself with such things at the moment. I, no, I've I had get enough. it. I um that that's kind of why I had a bit of a social media detox too. Like I kind of had to keep my social media because it's part of owning a business. I um well and and I have you know all my contact book on Facebook, and I would have to like set up something completely different than what I currently use. But I kind of wanted to go off all of social media for a while. Um, yeah, I don't know, like. So social media is one of two things like either you create an echo chamber for yourself by really like curating the content that you consume Mm -hmm. or you get your worldviews or your optimism for anything crushed by seeing what people say out loud. And the crazy thing about Facebook and why it bothers me so much more than anything else, like if you're on Reddit or um any like internet forum board or anything like everyone is anonymous on there. And I sort of feel like when someone anonymous says something, it bothers me way less Mm -hmm. when someone is using their real name, a photo of their face to say some really fucked up fascist shit. 
it's like, man, you could literally be living right next door to me. And even if you don't, you're voting in the same elections as I do. And this makes me feel less okay about our state of society. Yeah, it's kind of a slippery slope, but I don't know. I'm not saying any of this is useful thinking. I'm saying the opposite. I'm just saying like, this is why I don't like to go on Facebook because I get to stuck in these like thought loops. And uh, the thing is, I, uh, I just believe that the discussion, the the style of discussion in general, especially on social media is this is not constructive. This will not lead anywhere. Oh, it's inherently confrontational. The only purpose of the conversation, quote unquote, is to set up this them and us kind of cars. Someone's doing some burnouts on the intersection or something. Yeah. Like, I don't want, want to have two sides. There's, There's, there's no two sides. There's so many sides. There's hundreds of sides. And it's just this. I think sides apart. Like, I think the biggest problem is like no one is having constructive conversations. No, because they just they just uh, put themselves in a box. They're like, I am left or I am right. And it's if, even if less about say- that. It's more about like people want to disagree with shit. Like the, the, the sort of base standard seems to be. I read something, fuck you, Um, type some shit, says fuck you. And then the other person's like, wait a second, fuck me, fuck you. (laughs) And then like, that's pretty much how it goes. It's not even really about making a point or feeling strongly about something. I feel like people just want to be fucking outraged about something. I I know. Like, that's what it feels like to me. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but that's that's how it feels on a day-to-day it basis. It does. I fucking swear it's even present in my dreams now. Like, it goes... It. it I have this deep-seated fear of confrontation in society, and not because, oh my God, I'm terrified of confrontation, but it's because it is the kind of confrontation that has no fucking purpose at all. Like, I... I don't think anyone gains anything. And if I have a confrontation, I want it to be constructive and lead somewhere. And I want an open discussion, but open discussion is kind of like, yeah, not really a thing. Because even if you pretend you're open, you're kind of just like waiting for your turn to. Yeah. And even when you have an open discussion, um, Provided that you can all be equally constructive and change each other's minds using fierce logic and reason and everyone's better off at the end of it. Yeah, like if you have It still doesn't achieve anything because it's just like, I don't know, two to four people in a room that now agree on the correct thing. Yeah. And 95% of the rest of the population still not being on the same page about it and then still going to the election and voting based on their ill-conceived notions. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really, really appreciate good conversations when me too. two I find opposing them sides talk candidly and they don't just go there to attack each other, but like actually open up and unpack all that I shit think that they I enjoy conversation on. in the same way that other people enjoy sports. Like, yeah. if you go and play um, squash on a Sunday, um, 
doesn't really matter whether you win or lose, but you are like, ha, I beat you or, oh man, I lost. For me, conversation sort of feels the same way. Like I treat it a little bit like a debate, but um, yeah. but it's not really like, it's still sportsman-like, you know, like, uh, whereas I feel like people get a little bit too invested in shit. I mean, I get a little bit too invested in shit sometimes because maybe <laughs> what other people think is not really that important, but um but I think that's sort of like, you know, if you feel passionately about something, then you're going to argue that point probably. Oh, for sure. But yeah, I mean, when it all, you know, when the when the dust all settles uh, and you think back on it, it's like, well, that didn't really achieve anything. And it created a lot of anxiety for me and possibly the people around me. Like, Yeah, that anxiety is a driving force for me too not talk about things but at the same time it's also what makes us human because ideas don't exist without those conversations oh yeah no i i definitely um stretch my limits a little bit every time i uh talk about something that i feel anxious about like i don't really like to talk about politics openly because i feel like i don't do enough research to have those specific conversations. Most people don't. I know that, but I'm very self-conscious about it. And I, especially because of my, um, my limitations in English. Um, so basically I, first of all, I get very nervous when I have to speak about things, <laughs> anything really. Um, and I get really socially awkward and these two things kind of just block the area in my brain that is responsible for language. And I sound like I'm a five-year-old because I can't really articulate my deeper thoughts. Do you have thoughts. that problem in Hungarian as well or uh, just in English? Yeah, I'm not a very articulate speaker in regardless general, of language. Yeah, in gotcha. general. Um, I can do stuff in writing. I have no problem with writing. But holy fuck, when I have to to speak to someone, there's, that is the death of me. Yeah, no, I relate. I feel the same a little bit. Um, it might not seem like it, but that's what I feel like. I am so much more articulate in writing than I am mm. in word. Like, I feel like I'm relatively well-spoken, but I'm so much better written than I am spoken. And that's the thing. Like, you sound really good and you seem very intelligent but sometimes when I, I'm with you and I, I, I speak to other people, I feel like the difference between us is just, um, it's kind of comical in a way because I, I sound super simple to say the least. And it really bothers me, but hey, I just gotta. Yeah. It's just, not something that ever really occurred to me. Um, yeah. Like it's not your fault. Like it's totally. I didn't think it was, That's but <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think it's really that. Like, I think it's just that I speak very fast, and I have ADHD, so I have like twenty thousand thoughts a second, um, and I don't really run out of things to talk about. But I also read a lot all the time, and I always have random general knowledge to fill in the gaps that makes me sound possibly smarter than I am, or. Or maybe as smart as I am, but um, 
yeah, I don't know. Like I, I'm kind of good at filling in the gaps most of the time. And mm. I think the ability to not like pause too much and too often, like in the same way that I was saying conversation is a sport, it's like, you know, if you miss your serve in tennis or squash or whatever the fuck, um, doesn't matter how good your return hit was going to be, you know, like, uh, yeah. so it's, uh, it's partially like just being able to keep up in the situation that you're in. Um, but yeah, of course there's going to be some, uh, some differences between everyone. Oh yeah. And I'm also younger than you. So it's just, it also comes with time. I don't know. I'll get better at it. I just need to, to practice a lot. Yeah, and I think as well, like, part of it has been because for me, verbal communication has been very important in my career. So I've mm-hmm. um, I've kind of honed those skills. But up until now, I mean, we're going to start traveling a bit more soon for work and meetings and stuff. But up until now, v- um, verbal communication hasn't been, like, I don't want to be dramatic, but, like, for me, like, when you look at your career, like, Earning money is ability to eat. So in a way, it's kind of life or death. Yeah. Like verbal communication has been a case of life or death for me many, many times. Uh, like whether I will be able to pay rent next month or not depends on my verbal communication, which leads me to getting a job or whatever, um, much more so than my written communication. And up until now, you've only been relying on your written communication. So I suppose um, yeah, the verbal communication is something that's, yeah, I never really thought about it, but that's something that, yeah, you have to hone, but honing it under pressure is where it gets good, probably. I don't know. That is why I prepare for every single phone call for a day straight. <laughs> yeah, but if you end up getting to the point where you're having four or five phone calls a, a day, you're not going to be able to do that anymore, and eventually you're going to fall into like a natural rhythm. You think? <laughs> do you trust that I won't do that anymore? I oh, just simply won't have time to, but um, it just becomes. Oh, watch me! I you end up time building it. like a survival instinct, basically. Like, um, I think filling in those blanks and like being able to hold like a presence in a conversation is um, just something you kind of naturally pick up or don't. But uh, I'm not saying I'm particularly good at. It. I say a lot of ums and ahs and stuff, but I think generally I tend to hold my own in a conversation. No, you're fine. You're much better than I am. Yeah, but it's also up to me if I'm interested in talking to someone about their story to give them enough room to um, to breathe and be able to tell their story uh, regardless of, uh, of that. Yeah, that's true. It's also a skill to learn. But I think if you have something that you want to say and it's something that you want to say, it's almost your responsibility to find that gap to, uh, to oh, insert yeah. it. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I think it's um, kind of like a two-way street. For sure, yeah. No, I don't know. It just doesn't come to me naturally. Like, I've always been extremely anxious to speak at any capacity. <laughs> like, um, so when you finish high school in Hungary, you have this series of of uh, tests and um, um, there's a lot of verbal tests and oh my god the I've always been horrible at those because 
I get so incredibly anxious. I don't think that my my friends quite understood how pressured I felt. Like I was just out of my mind, insanely anxious every time I had to take one of those verbal tests. And it doesn't matter how much I study or, or anything, I will not be able to speak. Yeah, I think public speaking is probably one of the most common fears. It's so bad. Um, I don't know. I almost wonder if like, so they have a lot of compulsory subjects at school. Some a lot more useful than others, but I almost wonder if having like a compulsory theater class would be uh, useful because if you are forced to perform in front of a group of people, that's so much worse than any other public speaking experience that at least you'll have like a baseline that's above anything you'll probably ever have to do again. Yeah, that or like debating or something. Yeah. We, I don't think we... I feel like debating is not the right... So if debating, <sighs> you have to do public speaking and prove that your ideas or at least ability to argue them yeah. are better than someone else's. Whereas theater is you're literally just regurgitating someone else's okay, words, true. but in front, in front of a large group of people. And I would actually argue that any major public speaking that we ever have to do involves taking on some sort of a role anyway, at which point it's very, very close to acting because- Yeah, I haven't thought about it this way. Because most people write their speeches for anything that's worth- Oh, yeah, I would totally. Yeah, and then that's no different to getting a play and learning your lines and doing it that way, you know, like whereas with learning the play and, you know, your lines and that sort of stuff, the writing is not involved in it, so you learn just that skill set in an isolated format, and I think that's probably quite useful for most people. Uh, mm. It's weird because I used to perform a lot um, anywhere from like – dancing to smaller roles and stuff but i never ever got used to it it was always just incredible pressure oh you totally never get used to it like on closing night like uh, when i did theater i had a lead role in a play um that's a few years ago now that i've done theater maybe six ish years ago seven um but even on closing night, after you've been doing the same show every day for two weeks, that doesn't go away. Like, that's still part of it. The The difference is not whether that fear goes away. It's just getting used to it, I guess, in a way. Like, this is, this is reality. This is what I've signed up to do. And just kind of accepting it in a way. Like, it doesn't make the fear less. It just, if you accept that fear, it doesn't own you. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's easier said than done, but I get it. Yeah, but you got to do it to be able to, <laughs> like, yeah, it is easier said than done, but so is everything. Yeah, true. I don't know. I'm just mumbling. <laughs> just going to pour another one. You know, this whiskey is not horrible, but... Um, Can I try? Sure, but I don't think I'm going to buy anything cheaper than this ever again. I always have to hold this like this because... It's a very heavy glass. It's so heavy. I think it weighs like 500 grams or something. It's uh, ridiculous. No, man. <laughs> not your thing? No. I got... 
You know. To be fair, this is pretty shitty whiskey. It's wild turkey. It's not exactly uh, top shelf. I gotta say, though, this is still probably one of the best whiskeys I've tried for me because it has, it doesn't just taste like lava. <laughs> it also has some uh, something sweet. Wait, are there like notes on this? It'll be like vanilla and oak and caramel. Yeah, that's, what, that's exactly what I thought. Vanilla. I noticed. I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a horrible whiskey. Like, you can do much, much worse than wild turkey, but it's definitely not great. Like, I wouldn't order this uh, in a bar. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not in a bar, but it's all right. Um, but I think the thing is you don't like whiskey, so the less it tastes like good whiskey, probably <laughs> the more you like it. And that is correct. <laughs> um, and the cheaper the whiskey you buy, the less it tastes like good whiskey. <laughs> it's perfect. I'm so cost efficient. Yeah, I don't know. I um, I kind of fucked myself up a little bit with almost everything. Like, I I know I end up like doing lots of research and becoming like a micro expert and stuff, and then it's really really hard to downgrade afterwards. Like, um, I remember that I uh, I wanted to sort of change my wardrobe before I uh, moved to Budapest last time. And I did like intense amounts of research. Like I know almost everything that goes into tailoring a suit, the different types of constructions, like the difference between bespoke and made to measure, the different types of cloths, the different types of styles, like what's formal, what's summer, what's winter. Like I didn't know any of this stuff and I don't own a good quality suit to this day, but I, um, I just kind of like became a micro expert and menswear because that's what I do. But I do that with everything. Like I do that when I buy a new camera. I do that when I buy audio gear, whatever. Um, but yeah, I kind of do that with food and beverages and stuff as well. And uh, I find myself pricing myself out of my own income bracket very, very quickly. Because I'm like, oh, yeah. everything that I like or at least everything that I can afford is shit. And I actually need to spend like 10 times as much on everything and it'll be way better. And it's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> I mean, I don't necessarily agree, but I just, I know that this is your reality. You're kind of a method person. Yeah. The thing is though, like I am correct. Like I'm objectively <laughs> correct. It's just not useful. I know. It's not that I'm wrong. It's just that. I can't afford my conclusions most of the time. Like I'd probably be a pretty good like consultant for someone. Like if rich cunts were like, oh, Harry, figure out what is the best X. I would be amazing at Done. that job. Like I would research the fuck out of it. I would become a micro expert in that shit like over the course of 48 hours and I would find them a pretty good answer. Yeah. The problem the is, is I do that for myself and then I'm like, oh, so like I need a new set of headphones. I have $50 to spend, but the set of headphones that I want is $400. Um, this is not working for me. You got to monetize that shit somehow. I don't know, man. I don't want to become an affiliate marketer. I feel like affiliate no, marketing I mean, is the cancer of, like, of the internet. No, no, that's not what I was thinking of. Maybe like, it sounds like, like a made up job title. Well, I'm pretty sure it exists. Like a research specialist or 
I have no like formal research skills though. Like I can't back up any of my information because like being you, a researcher well, requires keeping records and having references and stuff. I'm horrible at that stuff. Well, you got to fucking learn. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to like, do that as a job though. <laughs> but you already do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to. I do it for myself, though. Like, I do it with stuff that I'm genuinely interested in at the time. But, like, um, I, I do it a little bit for my work. So, like, if I'm writing a screenplay, like, there's a big whiteboard behind you. Uh, and, like, I was trying to figure out. So, like, in the screenplay that I'm writing, there's this um, this gang in Nashville. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what locations they have but more importantly what their income stream is because if i don't know what their income stream is i don't know what to make the characters do because what the characters do isn't really important but it does need to be consistent Mm -hmm. or somewhat coherent um so i started like researching what the main sources of income for organized crime were so that i was at least on the right track and then like I picked a slightly more obscure one so it wasn't so obvious and then started doing like side research into that and then I thought Is that thunder? It is thunder. That shook the whole house. Did you feel I it in the feel floor? That. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Um anyway, I did like research into that. So like I found some like I found a crime that I thought was interesting, but also like the weirdest possible crime I could choose with that particular crime family. Because I think um that uh, what's it called um not contradiction um doesn't matter but anyway like uh to have something that's that's weird for that choice you know that's what makes it interesting so i um i've been drinking a little so um slightly <laughs> less articulate than usual usual um still not as bad as me but then like i started digging further into that and i tried to find like real life examples of that specific crime um which I found didn't exist within the world that I created traditionally, but that's what made it more interesting because I was like, how can I then incorporate this into this fictional world? So like, I definitely do do it within my work as well. Um, And the same when I make artistic decisions, man, that's uh, some brutal thunder. I can feel that. But but yeah, like uh, when I make artistic decisions, like lens choices even, like I will... um, I have spent hundreds of hours researching various directors, favorite lens focal length choices, mm-hmm. um, and then cross-referencing it with their shooting style and thinking about how different focal lengths create different shot psychology and different like storytelling and that sort of stuff. But yeah, I just like I just research the fuck out of stuff. I get really obsessed, and I think that's yeah, both detrimental but also. Um, what allows me to become like good at certain things. Uh, Cause I don't think I'm a great artist, but I think I'm pretty good at bullshitting my way through it. If I have enough information. Mm. Welcome to the world of Harry. <coughs> I kind of wish I had the same sentiment about research because I kind of just wing it a lot of times. You're kind of the opposite. I feel like you do like zero research. Yeah, I'm really bad at it. But I've always been like this. At the same time, though, you're more productive than I am. So I don't know if uh, causation is correlation or whatever, but uh, sorry, correlation is causation. I I wonder if research is somehow... That was lightning. Somehow 
uh, an escapism thing for you? Um, I don't think it's really escapism. I think it's just the way my brain works. Like it's partially the ADHD and the lack of impulse control and stuff, you know, like I, um, I am compelled to research. Like if no mm-hmm. one is saying, Hey, stop fucking around or I will fire you. This is why being self-employed is hard for me because I, I will go on research tangents. But don't you f- sometimes have a feeling that, oh, this is kind of unnecessary, but I, I just can feel this compulsion. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of random stuff, but then at the same time, like I will have conversations with people that have, some sort of place in my career or my life. And I can only have those conversations because of my ridiculous and broad general knowledge. Like, mm-hmm. um, it sounds really bizarre and arrogant to say, but like my general knowledge is at the point right now where I can bullshit my way through almost any conversation, which means that if I want to connect with someone, I can probably manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even to the extent where I can probably have a somewhat meaningful conversation because I just pick up so much random information that I'm kind of, even if I don't know that much about it, I'm interested enough in almost everything that I can feel engaged in almost any sort of conversation. Good for you. <laughs> I kind of envy, envy you. Like that, that is definitely a skill in my opinion i don't think it's a skill i feel like it's a personality trait because like i i get really frustrated when that doesn't exist in other people because um it makes it really hard for me to have you know meaningful conversations with them or Uh something like um it's not it's not as basic as like oh, this person thinks about things in simplistic ways or whatever. Like, that's not true. It's not like smart people, dumb people, whatever. Like, I don't even think I'm like significantly above average intelligence. Like, I'm definitely nowhere near genius levels. Um, It's not about like relative intelligence. I think it's just about relative curiosity. Yeah, I get that. Um. Because I know a lot of people that are a lot smarter than me, but have a lot less general curiosity than me, and they um, just never really achieve any sort of um, stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Like they, I feel like they don't dig deep enough. Like um, sometimes, I don't. I certainly don't. I know that. Like it's it's kind of frustrating in a way. It's not sustainable for everyone to do that though. Like for me, it's not sustainable to have a career know, and be right. like that. Like, I feel like I'm too far in the opposite direction because- I just uh, wonder if, if um, from starting from possibly my uh, generation, if it's a generational problem. Like I can't uh, really- It's not. I, I can't really feel the same curiosity in my brothers, for example- it's not a generational problem. Like there's plenty of people in my generation that don't have, you know, but like the thing is it's not correlated to anything in specific. I feel like it's almost an individual thing because it's certainly not tied to success mm-hmm. um, except for the extreme outliers. But in any statistic, you need to take the outliers out for it to make sense. Um, I think it's just a, an individual 
personality trait because most of my best friends are extremely curious about stuff in general or at least interested in discussing stuff. And I think you are too. Like when I talk with you about, I mean, we're having this conversation right now and you're engaged and you're thinking about it. You're actively engaged in it. But like, um, you know, there's different levels. Like my brain is just doing this all the fucking time and it's exhausting and it makes it hard to get on with work and stuff. It's like, um, it's almost like static, like white noise on the TV. Like I think about a lot of really useless shit all the time and I can't switch that noise off. Same. But I think my useless shit is even more useless than yours. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like maybe my research is a coping mechanism. Like That's um, what I'm saying. It just gives me something to put that energy into. You need to feed that um, storage of useless shit that you, then you can regurgitate. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to run out of storage. I mean, manual recall is pretty bad. And with the amount of drugs I smoke and alcohol I drink, um, I think uh, my manual recall is probably not better than it's ever been. (laughs) But Mm, um, Fuck it. But I feel like it's less about manual recall of specific facts. And I feel like the more information I fill my head with, the easier it becomes to deduct a conclusion about anything. Like, I feel like the more stuff you know, even at a subconscious level, the easier it is to think about almost anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you're also much more likely to get stuck in some form of analysis paralysis if you're not diligent about it because... Uh, yeah, I've been there. I think I'll, uh, that definitely affects my uh, general mental health. So I... I think for me it's the exact opposite. I try to sometimes distance myself from the static because it's just too much. So I, I mean, it's not really a good excuse for not doing research and stuff, but I just get overwhelmed. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, my only way to distance myself from it is drugs and alcohol, basically. Like I, No, it's not very productive. No, um, I probably have like genuine mental health issues or something like, uh, I, I reckon it's probably ADHD. Mm-hmm. I've never been formally diagnosed, but it's pretty textbook. Um, but yeah, either I do the research or I get drunk and stoned all the time. Um, there's not really an alternative for me mm-hmm. at this point. I'm trying to do like the whole healthy eating and exercise and like, um, pretty well researched nootropic stack and all that sort of stuff. But um, that helps to an extent, but it still doesn't change how my brain works fundamentally. Oh, definitely. It's not a solution for everything. That being said, I'm not sure if I want to change it. Like it makes a lot of things in life a lot harder, but at the same time, I feel like my work is definitely better as a result of it, even though I'm not super productive. It's because it's you. Exactly. I mean, as much as you hate it, it is a part of you. And if you, you can try to fight it and you try, you can try to treat it and whatever. But I mean, it is kind of always going to be part of your um, personality. And I don't know, might as well also learn to embrace it. Like, I don't want to like 
push the whole cliche of the tortured artist or whatever. Like, but it's it's kind of true. Yeah, I, uh, um, I think so. Because, like, I know Stephen King, he did this biography, uh, autobiography, um, which was turned into an audiobook narrated by him, Stephen King, on writing. And he talked about, like, his intense alcoholism and how it was bad for, like, his home life and, um, you know, it was just mm-hmm. really fucking his shit up. And then he got clean and wrote just as much, if not more. Thing is... And this is super controversial, but his writing was better before he quit drinking. I knew you were going to say that. And that's subjective. Yeah. But um, all of the great films made from his works were written during the time of his (laughs) self-abuse. And I'm not saying that self-abuse equals good work. Oh, no, it does not. It absolutely does not. I don't want to condone that. I'm just saying I get it. Yeah. Like... When I am feeling 100% okay psychologically, which is not often, that is the time when I'm not producing good quality artistic work. Yeah. is I don't know how that works for you, but when that happens to me, I generally just um, try to embrace it and enjoy my time and I kind of just... Uh, That's when I want to go to the beach and fucking like see animals and stuff. I don't necessarily want to create anything like. So like my creative process exists mostly out of frustration. Yeah. Like I think most people listening to this podcast will be familiar with Disappear, my short film. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're not, go watch it. It's only four minutes long. It's on the same channel. Um But basically that film was written out of frustration. It was made out of frustration. Like that was just, that was like two and a half years of pure embodiment of my frustration with life poured into one thing. And I think that's what gave it soul. Like, um, I feel like writing from a point of like, so like art is a way of connecting with people. Like without sounding too wanky, it's like, you know, like exposing your soul to touch other people's, you know, it's, it's sharing your human experience. Yeah. And I think the only way to do that in any sort of meaningful way is if you're feeling something and ideally feeling something genuine. Yeah. Um, and that can be feeling something good, but you can't just tell a story about something that feels good, like, because without knowing what feeling bad feels like, you have no way to... Um, make that good feeling a satisfying conclusion to something or whatever, you know, like, um, you need to have a spectrum and some people are just geniuses and some people can just do this stuff completely hypothetically without having had uh, adversity themselves. But I reckon they're the unicorns. Like, I don't think that's the standard. Like I feel like the best artistic work generally comes from some form of adversity. Yeah. And even if if the art itself doesn't come from adversity, um, producing and perfecting the art for sure involves adversity. And well, not necessarily adversity, but some type of suffering, in my opinion. Like you kind of just chew it and try to mold it into the best form. And sometimes it's quite painful. Yeah. 
I don't know. I, I mean, the best love songs are about romance has gone bad, not romance has gone well. Yeah. I mean. We really like to, like, I think it was Lightning Hopkins that said that blues is happy music. And I totally get what he says because it's not happy music because of the content. It's happy music because it's real. Mm-hmm. And because the motherfucker singing it has been through so much worse shit than you will ever go through that you feel okay about your own life. You know, like. Yeah. And that's what makes you feel good. You're like, you walk out of that movie or that song or whatever. And it's like, that shit was brutal and that person managed to get through it and get their shit together. I have no excuses. So if uh, Leonardo DiCaprio can get a fucking Oscar finally, so can you. (laughs) Oh man, that was painful. It took a long time. And I don't even think that he got the Oscar for the right movie. I was so pissed. <laughs> Honestly, I don't care about an Oscar. I just want to make more than 10 grand a year on average. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I don't know. I I can't. I, I was never really focused on money much, but. I'm not focused on money either. Making more than I used to is. Oh man, it made my life so much better. I don't want to live in a mansion in the hills. I don't want, like, basically all I want is for- Is to not live in this. (laughs) Well, this shithole of a house is one thing, but the main thing for me is I don't want every single thing to be a financial decision. Like, when I go to the bottle store, I want to be like, I shouldn't do this because it's bad for my liver. I promised myself a diet. I'm not going to buy a bottle of bourbon because I shouldn't drink a bottle of bourbon. But also, ooh, that's a nice bottle. It's $110. Okay. That aside, like <laughs> even a $40 bottle of bourbon on our current budget. But like it's, uh, but it's not that. It's not like, oh, I'm going to fuck myself up, he- myself up health wise. It's like, uh, if I spend $40 on a bottle of bourbon right now, that's like $40 less than I can spend on something else. And, you know, like yeah. I don't. But everything, like the rent, the fucking power, like our internet, like everything is a financial decision. It's like, shall we go out for lunch while we're in town? It's like, it's not like, do we feel like going out for lunch in town? It's like, can we afford it? When is the last time we did it? If we do it now, when is the next time we can conceivably do it again? It's like, I know that's the reality of most people. And I'm not trying to like say that no one should live like that. But to me, my, my goal is to get out of that general state. Like I don't want everything yeah. to be a financial decision are, anymore. I don't think we are asking for too much. Especially not with two people without children, you know, like mm. I think as a combined we income that should be modest. achievable. Like um, sometimes we let go and spend a little bit more than we should. Like, I think we are still quite liberal with our spending, even though- Oh, way too liberal with our spending. Um, But that being said, like, I have been in my career for 13 years. I am still about five to 10 years away from my breakthrough. Um, And I have to spend some money at some points to feel okay about myself. Like I need to eat good food. Like I can't eat two minute noodles 
for 13 fucking years. Amazing though. They're amazing until you've had to live off of them for months at a time. Oh, I can I can't really get tired of them. You were a middle class university student. Uh, but I was a working poor university student. Uh, but noodles are amazing. I lived off of nothing but potatoes for like two months straight. Potatoes are also amazing. Not when they're the only thing, literally the only thing you eat for two months. I get it. I'm just teasing you. But but, um, but anyway, like I, I reckon I will hit my breakthrough sometime between 35 and 40. Realistically, I'm on track to do that right now. And my breakthrough won't be a massive breakthrough. That'll be a minor breakthrough at that age. But, you know, I'm okay with that because I started my career at age 17. I dropped out of school 15, fucked around for two years, and then started my career at 17, which is still earlier than most people. Um, If I break through at 40, I still have a good 20 to 25 years left in my career. If I don't retire a solid 30, 35 years left. Um, so that means that by the time I hit breakthrough, I'll still be less than like a third of the way through my career. Mm. And I'm okay with that. Like, I think that's a healthy way to look at it. You know, like everybody wants to be something by the time they're 22, 23. And it's like, yeah, mate, that's not really, you know, it's, it's that mastery thing. Everything. Like it's amount of hours spent doing something, but it's also amount of hours spent living and having like some world perspective and a you know, something worth saying. Like, I feel like even right now, I don't really have anything that's like worth saying. Me neither. Like, I feel like I'm getting there. Like, I feel like I have some. Working on it, you know. Yeah. Like I have some things that I feel okay saying out loud, but I'm just as happy for someone to prove me wrong on those things. Like I don't have any like super strong convictions like, Beyond like, you know, be good to each other and don't fuck shit up. Like, uh, but then that's like a completely open-ended thing anyway. But like, yeah, I, I feel like by the time I get to like 35, 40, feeling where I am right now, I might have something worth saying that I'm happy to say that's interesting enough to say that it can, you know, support my ability to maintain a career in the storytelling yeah. uh, field. Um. It's not to say I couldn't write a script right now. I just don't think it would be quite necessarily time yet. It's fine. No, I think I'll do a write on the script that I'm writing at the moment because it's, um, it's finishing someone else's script. I got sent half a script that he asked me to finish basically. Um, so I kind of have an idea like of what he's trying to say with this script. So it's less about my own voice and more about interpreting his voice Mm and the writing of it. Um, I'm never going to be credited as writer. It'd always be co-writer. So it's like, um, it's more about it. It's more of an interpretation job, which I'm good with. But like in terms of starting something completely by myself, you know, in the next few years, I'll probably write a low budget horror film and it won't be particularly meaningful or um, profound or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But it doesn't need to be, you know, film is just purely entertainment sometimes and that's fine. I think I'm, Pretty much doing the same thing um, with retouching. Like, I don't create the the raw product. Well, none of your work is really high art, and I don't say that in a derogatory no. way. But it's it's simply it doesn't not need to be. exactly. That is That's not, what I'm saying, though. I'm, yeah, I'm all right with I don't my work not being high it, art, but I need to perfect it, and I think that is exactly 
the part of the process that suits me the best. Yeah. So you can like accomplish technical excellency. Um, I watched a movie today by Ron Howard called uh, In the Heart of the Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, objectively, it was a good film. Like it was good. Like it was very, very competently done. I mean, Ron Howard is an incredibly experienced director. He had a great team. Um, good actors, so on and so forth. There was nothing wrong with the film. Like I couldn't technically really fault it on anything. It just felt like it had, it was missing that like intangible, like soul or heart Mm -hmm. or voice, you know, like I feel like no one really gave enough of a fuck about that film for it to have a voice that was loud enough for anyone to take real attention. Mm-hmm. Like it was a good film. No one can say it was a terrible film because it objectively was not a terrible film. But at the same time, it's not going to be nominated for an Oscar for anything really because I just feel like there wasn't enough of a driving force behind it. And I feel like that comes from the need of someone, it doesn't have to be the director, but the writer, the director, the cinematographer, an actor, like someone has to take ownership of the work and give enough of a fuck about it to make the work loud enough to say something, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. and not every piece of work has to do that, but I would like to have some of my work at some point achieve that. You know, like if you look at something... um, Do you think you will ever want to go for an Oscar, for example? I have way less interest in awards. And this is not just me being like, you know, humble brag or whatever. Like I've had an award from Cannes Leons, which is not proper Cannes. It's the ad Cannes. But um, I have way less interest in recognition from established boards and stuff because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of politics and stuff that goes on and all of that. Like, but it's more making something that I myself can be honest to myself about and say like, that was a good piece of work, you know, like um, that gets appreciated by people you look up to. That's just that added bonus. Yeah, for sure. Like, um, Sometimes I need those people that I look up to to tell me that it was a good piece of work for me to accept it myself, like disappear for me when I finished it. Can was you it, accept it? I can. Okay. It takes good. me a while, but I need the right people to tell me like, you know, like I love my mom and dad, but if they tell me I created a good piece of work, it's like, well, same, you know, like it's not quite the same. Uh, it's like, you know, they, they have their own tastes and things. Um, not saying their taste is objectively good or objectively bad, but the thing is they're not experts in this field and they yeah. they can't. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just No, like, but they're like, uh, you know, like an average yeah. perspective on this, but I need to Civilians. have. But at the same time, I don't want a critic's perspective on it. Like I want, I want a, a respected peer's perspective on it. Okay, yeah. So like when um, when I won the Young, Di- Young Directors Award and I was awarded it by Danny Boyle, um, Train Spotting, Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, which one was that award? 
Mill there was Valley young, or something. Uh, no, there wasn't Mill Valley. That was um, Shuffle Film Festival okay, in London. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, for him to choose my work to win first place in that festival, mm-hmm. that was validation for me. It was like, oh, yeah. I grew up watching your movies. Exactly. 28 Days Later is one of those films that I wish I made. Um, for many different reasons, but, um, that, that to me was validation because it was like someone I respect and someone whose career I would be just as happy for my own career to emulate. If they like my work, that's validation for me. I think that is the highest form of appreciation. Like my year was so good because I kept surrounding myself with like very competent people and, I got some really good feedback and it was just I think when people so you respect fulfilling. give you a shout out as well. Like I had one of the directors of Ardman Animation, you know, like the people that do Wallace and Gromit and stuff. Like yeah. he he shouted out my work on oh, Twitter. That's so cool. And it's like, dude, you work on like fifty million dollar animated films and like you're the director of those films and you like my work. That's that's, that's pretty awesome. cool. I mean, to be fair, like I tweeted my work to him and like got him so? to watch it. But the fact that he actually watched it and was like, wow, this is a really good piece of work. I was like, awesome. At the same time, I think I was very naive coming out of the end of that because I was kind of expecting someone to give me a job at some point because I was like, Hey. Yeah, I was I was wondering what your mindset was. I was spent two and a half years on this shit. It's four <laughs> minutes long. Everybody loves it. I'm not saying it's perfect. Like there's, there's stuff that I, I still watch that film to this day and be like, man, I fucked half of the show up horribly. Like that last shot, you know, when it does that pan around the room to the yeah. beeper, it's so jerky and I should have shot it on 24 FPS, but I shot the whole film on 12s and I was like, all right, consistency over whatever, but I, I should... Never mind. There's always stuff that I'm like, oh God, what the fuck did I do? But anyway, like people generally connected with that film. It's got a lot of views. Um, People still message me to this day saying like, either your story of making this film or the film itself had a profound effect, blah, 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 blah. And that's, that's a really cool feeling. But I haven't been able to capitalize on anything from that film. Like I think I've made, since that film came out like five years ago or something, I've probably made... I don't know, like less than 10 grand on the back of it, including licensing footage and that sort of stuff. Like, So yeah. technically, I kind of made... Did you make the equal... I did not ROI on that film. Ah, fuck. Um, Never mind. D- depends on how you count ROI, but um, that film realistically was about 30 grand. Oh, my God. <laughs> Most of that money was my living cost. Yes. Well, it matters. Yeah, because if you spend two and a half years on something, you got to feed and clothe yourself. Uh, I think uh, I was living at my parents' place most of that time because um, I had my studio out the back of Dad's engineering workshop. But even still, like I was contributing to food and I was running a yeah, car, and uh, you know, even even if you have very Just little living. actual like living costs, you still got to buy clothes and fucking doctors' appointments and. Mm. You know, uh, I think I had a girlfriend at one point while I was doing that and that cost money. Even <laughs> if it doesn't cost a lot, it costs something, you know. like. See, and that's why you date me. <laughs> the thing is though, like if you're unemployment, on unemployment benefit and you go out for lunch once like every two weeks, yeah, that's still like, I don't know, like a quarter money. of your income or something, you know, like it's nuts. Uh, 
That's why I was saying, like, I don't want everything to be a fucking financial decision anymore because it's exhausting. Speaking of, we need to go to that Japanese restaurant on my birthday. Yeah, we'll see whether we go Japanese or something else because we're going Japanese on holiday and you might not be... Uh, I can't get enough. The thing is, in Hungary, you can't really get... Well, that's not true. You can get Japanese, but um, most of the quote-unquote Asian food, what we call There's Chinese. a good Japanese <laughs> restaurant close to um, the main train center. In, I know uh, which one. I uh, I told mom to go there. It's about 8,000 forints, I think, for... Uh, and, it's, and it's all you can eat, uh, Japanese and all you can drink because in Hungary, all you can eat is also all you can drink. So it's so much cheaper there than it is. We here. just have to go there. There's no question. The thing is, though, like we've just come from New Zealand. Eighty we'll, bucks for two people. When we're traveling there, eat. we'll still be on our New Zealand income. So mm. like forty dollars for all you can eat and drink. We should go next year. I mean, even if we only went there and drank, it would still be cheaper than going out for two drinks in Ponsonby. Holy fuck! What was that like? Thirteen dollars for three th- three thirty mil of beer. It was beer? thirteen dollars for a bottle of Heineken. Yeah. Ah, and you can get like a half liter um can for one dollar. Well, maybe well, more. that's supermarket prices, so that's not relevant. But even still, like tap beer in Hungary, uh, for something that's not horrible, you pay three five six hundred forints. Uh, so that's uh, oh, I counted with seven, but yeah. But yeah, it's like. It's worlds apart. That being said, we have like substantially less corruption and other things. You know, there's trade-offs, but- uh, You win something, you lose some. Apparently, New Zealand is one of the most livable countries in the world. I'm not really sure how that metric is made, though, because it's been pretty hard for us to survive, but- um, Yeah, I get a lot of questions about New Zealand, and it's hard to answer objectively because- I feel like my experience had it's been not pretty typical. rocky yeah. and very, very not typical. Like, I'm sorry, but who the fuck comes to New Zealand to live in the middle of nowhere for many, many years and not experience anything? Because I came here and I decided to build a career and that's what I've been working on and I haven't really yeah. got around uh, doing much. We fucked up a little bit. Um I don't, I wouldn't say we fucked up. I think we did a little bit though. Like, did we? I mean, I don't regret anything because I don't feel like regret is a useful no, me neither. thing. But I certainly learned from it. Like, I think if we had have moved to Auckland or Wellington, it would have sucked way worse than it sucked here for a while. And but we would have yeah. had the resources to pull ourselves out of it better because, like, if I went and got a part-time job where we live now, and I have done, mm-hmm. um, I had a part-time job uh, in Stratford for a little while. Um, we wouldn't be financially any better off than we are right now. I would have to get a full-time job. And because we live where we live, I couldn't get a full-time job in anything I'm qualified to do because anything I'm qualified to do, I'm worth anywhere between 30 and and $100 an hour right now. That's quite um, a range. It's quite a range, but it's at least $30 an hour. Yeah. Um, outside of my qualifications, I'm worth approximately minimum wage, which is about $18 an hour. Um, is it? It's going up. $18 an hour in New Zealand, though. That's still fuck still? all. <laughs> but, um, but what I mean to say is you that- You know, I'm just so used to Hungarian things. If we lived in Auckland or Wellington, I probably could have gotten periodic work- in the industry that I'm qualified in, which would have made 
working a worthwhile venture. Um, whereas we got to the point where we were so poor and so isolated that it was impossible for me to earn money basically. Uh, yeah, because I was fine because I always earned my money online, but for you, it's a whole different story. Yeah, like for me, I have to travel for my money, but I have to travel before I get booked to do the jobs for travel. Yeah. So like I have to travel to the big cities stay in touch with people, have meetings in the hopes that they will hire me on their projects sort of thing. Um, but if you're really poor, you can't afford to do that. <clears throat> so kind of like if you want to move out to the countryside, you want to make sure that you have enough of a slush fund to tide you through those meetings until you get more work and so on and so forth. Whereas we never had that. We went straight out into the countryside. Um, I don't know if we would have survived in the city in all honesty. Like, I don't know if we could have made it. Know. But if we did, um, we'd probably be, even though our living expenses would be significantly more than they are right now, we'd probably be financially much better off because I would have had the opportunity mm -hmm. to work. Maybe. I wonder though, if, if we got through the bumps way quicker than we actually did. Um, I don't know how to frame this question, but do you think we would be still together? Because... We had quite a lot of adversity, and I think that actually worked in our favor. I know what you mean, yeah. Um, I don't know, actually. Um, I think the isolation has kind of galvanized us a little bit. Mm. Um, we kind of just didn't have a choice. Like, I know this sounds kind of bad, but I don't know. We are only human, and we had- We were extremely interdependent. Yeah. Um, unhealthily so to an argument's point, but, um, yeah, I mean, like, I think the best word I can use to describe it is galvanized. I feel like it galvanized our uh, relationship. <laughs> I like the chemical brothers. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think again, like, that's what I'm saying though. Like I have zero regrets because everything in life has kind of like made me who I am. Cliche, oh, I know cliche. it's super cliche, but, but I keep repeating that. That's very, very true. Like, um, I think I am a better person as a result of going through all this crap. I agree. And it's like, you know, you can always coulda, woulda, shoulda, but it's not really very productive. I don't care. It happens. This is. I think it's it important to reflect on things and to. Oh, it um, is important, but. And to see like how you can grow as a result of them and so on. But like, I think to have any form of like heavy set regret where you spend active mental energy thinking about, ah, oh, I wish I could have done this differently. It's like, oh, fuck that. It's like, that's not useful. Um, I think if you have a lot of regret about what you did, you are not thinking hard enough about all the sides of the story. Like it, well, you're ideally you can forward. turn it into a lesson. But I feel you. like regret is a self-inflicted form of pain. Like, um, yeah, I like mean. I, I'm very, very, very against telling people with mental health problems to just get the fuck on with it. But I feel like regret is one of those things where I'm like, all I can say is get the fuck on with it because <laughs> take your life lessons and be like, yeah, 
that was probably not the best thing to do. But if I spend the next 12 months thinking about how much of a piece of shit I am, it's probably not going to project me into success. I know. I think you, you kind of grow out of having regret. Some people do, yeah. Because I think a, a lot of people like something I've noticed a lot is people saying like, oh, you're so lucky and this and that. And I feel like that is kind of triggering for me in a way. <laughs> I know. Because those same people that say, oh, you're so lucky. It's like. There's a motherfucker. <laughs> even sweat and blood. There's not a very high. Uh, High bar either, because even if they're on welfare and say you're so lucky, it's like, I still live off less money than you. <laughs> I live off less money than someone with welfare, generally speaking. Um, and I've been working 80 hours a week for 13 years to get there. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a stretch, but I get I know. what you mean. But the thing is, I don't actively work 80 hours a week, but I'm Mm. mentally there 80 hours a week you know oh, I like, get that. Yeah, like i don't switch off at the end of 40 hours like yeah the working class get to do like it's just always on i uh i this is like that's not to take away from the working class like i don't oh, no, physically no. work as hard but like mentally i exhaust the fuck but out that's of myself the thing. i very very much appreciate their work um but at the same time I don't believe everyone should be, I don't know, like from like factory worker to doctor. Like there's so much variation in the middle. And I think we don't necessarily give credit to anything in between. So there's this. Like um, my job is pretty unnecessary to say the least. Yeah, but it's still a functional and existing part of our society. But some sorry, um, sometimes I just feel like because my job is such a an abstract thing, um, I don't feel appreciated by people who actually do the dirty work because they're like, yeah, I mean, you fuck around in Photoshop, and I, I'm like, yeah, technically, you are totally right. You know, like in a way, they're not wrong, but at the same time. That's not to say that what you do is easy. That's the thing. You just have to. I would argue, though, that my job is necessary. What's your argument? That's where it gets interesting, I suppose. But um, Go for it. I think that um, historically, and this is going back like as far as recorded history goes. Yep. Uh, poets and storytellers were a way of us recording the mm -hmm. human experience in an abstract that wasn't purely academic. Okay. Um, and I think that that's an essential part of um, of like record keeping of what it is to be human at any one point in time. Mm. So does that mean that's that kind that of like calling a bus driver a public transport facilitator, though? Technically. <laughs> so as to whether that's a bunch of wank or whether that holds any value, but I, I, you know what? I genuinely believe that that holds value. I think it's true. Like You're I free think, to do so. I think storytelling is so important and it's a way for us to deal with the human condition. Basically it's for us to like, you know, publicly engage in being like, Oh, 
I feel that, you know, like when you watch something like Peep Show, the TV show. Oh, so good. And like you get to see how other people experience the same shit that you experience every single day. And you're like, huh, that fucked up <laughs> shit I was thinking. That person is Everybody also think- thinks that way. Exactly. But I feel like that is a very valuable contribution to society. Like I feel like. Okay, I can see that. At the same time, what I do is kind of bullshit because it's all made up and it's all pretend. But mm-hmm. the intention behind it, provided that you transcend that basic function, is is not pretend. Like there's genuine emotion and stuff that gets poured into it once it, you know, like once you achieve something that nears excellence. Mm. But I think that's why I have this like really intense um, self filter and self deprecation is because like. I hold myself, I try to hold myself to that standard when Mm -hmm. I work and I feel like that's um, unrealistic because I feel like you achieve that standard despite things, not because of them. Okay, yeah. Like I feel like either you're saying something genuine or you're not, but I feel like there's no way to like methodically work your way through that really. Like, um, Are you sure? I don't know, maybe there is. But I think that's also why just shit takes ages. Like, it's not like you bash out. Like, technically, I could type 128 pages in a relatively short period a week, of time. You yeah. know, like, but in order for that 120 pages to say something worth saying, it's going to take me like a year to work through and, like, first and foremost, figure out what I want to say, how I want to say it. Um, whether I'm saying it as concisely or as articulately as I can and so on and so forth and then like writing it and then reviewing it and trying to maintain some level of honesty throughout the whole process you know like it's uh, and that's why I ask you to proofread my long emails <laughs> yeah Um, I don't know I feel like I'm pretty well written overall <laughs> oh yeah you are but um, I don't have amazing work ethic. Like I feel mm-hmm. like um, ADHD has kind of fucked me up a little bit. Because, you know, like people always say like, oh, writers write, you know, like, and it's like, yeah, that's true. If I wrote more, I would be a better writer, like objectively, like any skill that you practice regularly, you get better at. Um, But I'm trying to do that at the moment, like, Realistically, I'm probably writing less than 10 hours a week at the moment, which is not great. You have to start somewhere. But that's substantially better than the zero hours a week I was writing before this. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's not ideal because you, you got to get this done, but at the same time, it's still better than nothing. Yeah. Part of the problem is the budget on this job that I'm doing right now. Like it's... Uh, well, but that's kind of just... What it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. It's more my perspective on the budget than the budget yeah. itself. So like the budget itself, if I were to look at it, it's like, right, I can spend a month on this based on this budget. Mm-hmm. Realistically though, it's like six months worth of work. And I should still approach it as if it's six months worth of work rather than trying to bash it out in a month. Because if I try to bash it out in a month, it's not going to be good quality work and I'm not going to get that second job as a result of it. I couldn't do what you do. For me, when I don't recommend anyone try. To be honest, it's a pretty <laughs> shitty job. Like it's it's really, really, really satisfying when you get it right, 
but it's also like years and years of crippling depression while you're fucking it up horribly. Yeah, I don't know. When when a job takes me like two weeks, I I start to get frustrated and then it drags on for three weeks and I'm like... That's why I started doing this podcast. <laughs> like I can turn this podcast, like we're recording this podcast on Saturday and it's launching tomorrow. Like I can turn this podcast around and start to finish in under six hours, provided I have a guest. If I need to, I can turn it around in under six hours. Um, like that bull sales video I did recently, I turned that around, you know, excluding the time that I spent in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, days of actual work, four days, maybe. Mm-hmm. That's reasonably fast turnaround. Oh, that's pretty great. Um, but that's faster than some of my disappear turnaround. approximately two and a half years. Um, any screenplay that I've. I wrote a feature film in under a week once. What? Never got produced though, so it's not very <laughs> uh, a very valuable metric. But um, I don't know, like good things take time or something. <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> but I really struggle with taking the time to do shit. I reckon that's I hard. Like I reckon it's genuinely hard. Like. I really feel for research scientists. Oh, God. Because I feel like they're even more like, you know, like when I'm writing something and I don't know whether it's going to work out or not or if I'm working on a film project or whatever, I can still kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like once I reach 120 pages, I have a feature length screenplay. It might be terrible, (laughs) but technically that's still subjective. 120, that's quite a long. It depends on how dialogue heavy it is. It's anywhere between uh, 80 pages and uh, 200 pages, okay. but uh, dialogue takes up uh, less time, but more page space, basically. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, so like an Aaron Sorkin script for a two-hour film will be like 200 pages long, whereas like a, I don't know, Clint Mansell film or something for a two-hour film might be like 90 pages long. It just uh, it just depends. Not sorry, not Clint Mansell, uh, Darren Aronofsky. Isn't he a um, music person? Yeah, Clint Mansell is a composer. I have had um, music person <laughs> half a bottle of whiskey. English. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, as a research scientist or something, you have a hunch or a pretty good hypothesis, but you never know if there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. You just kind of like, some people spend their Fuck. entire lives, like imagine being a I cancer researcher. Like how many people have dedicated their lives to researching a cure for cancer and have died before coming up with one? Like that's got to be a huge number of people. That's kind of depressing, but I really appreciate the efforts. Oh, so do I. I'm just saying I couldn't do it. Oh, no, no, no. Like that's not within my personality type. So, like, I hate doing longer projects. Honestly, I hate doing anything that takes me more than a week. Like, a week is pretty much my thing. Like, when I was doing explainer videos, I hated it because they took approximately a month to produce. And when I spend a month on something, I'm just so fucking happy to see the end of it. But these personal projects that I'm doing, like writing, uh, well, this is not a personal project. It's a hired project, but it's still going to be, like, minimum three months. Oh, Jesus. 
Um, but it, realistically, I'm probably going to spend on and off like 12 months on this project. Um, and then it might still not ever be produced. Um, to be fair, that's not your problem. Well, it is because if I don't get is paid it? adequately for the job and it doesn't get produced, I don't get any back end. And if I don't get any back end, I don't ROI. I mean, I don't know your terms, but. Yeah, but um, uh, it's not to say anything bad about the producer. He's a good guy and I chose to take on the job partially as a kick in the ass for me more than anything else because if I didn't take on this job, I wouldn't have gotten into the habit of writing regularly again. But um, Mm. but yeah, it's like at least even if I take on a project that's going to take a year and a half, it has like a logical conclusion. It's like if I commit 120 pages of text someone's either going to say this is horrible and completely unproducible and this is never going to see the light of day give up now, which is a a logical conclusion. Yeah. Or they're going to say this is amazing. We're going to produce this and put like $50 million into this film or anything in between. (laughs) But all of those things. Would you get a percentage? Um, I don't have a specific percentage in my contract, but, um, (laughs) but it says that, uh, everything will be negotiated in good faith, which doesn't really mean anything, but uh, I know the guy, he's a good guy. I trust him. Famous last words, (laughs) but no, he's a good guy. I like him. Um, but like either way, like regardless of whether it's good or bad, it has like a logical conclusion, you know? And I feel like that's ultimately what keeps us going like i feel like having logical conclusions to things like i can't imagine working in a job that doesn't you know like people work in jobs that just don't end and that to me is why i can't be an employee so like as much as it sucks to be self-employed i can't possibly fathom the idea of doing the same shit every day with no logical conclusion you're not trying to achieve anything it's purely just like your job is to maintain status quo I have to disagree. Would you not go insane in that situation? To be fair, my point of view is pretty limited because um, although I had part-time jobs, I've been lucky enough that retouching is actually my first full-time, like, real, real job. That's fascinating, Um, yeah. Oh, I... There's no fucking words for how I feel about this. I I feel like basically I'm. I know I said it already, but I'm just gonna say it for the podcast. Like I'm getting married to you, but I'm already married to my job. And I That's know the same cliche. Should I said at your age? Fuck it. I know it's cliche and it's ridiculous, but. I'm just giving you shit. I just feel such immersed love for what I do. And of course I get frustrated and sad and discouraged, but like, you know, relationships work like this. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Shit happens. It's fine. And I think it's also because we're both in a similar boat in that regard. It's so much easier to tolerate each other's positions. You understanding what I mean when I bitch about work is phenomenal i and vice versa i don't think it's comparable to anything i don't know it's just a huge crutch for me in a way yeah vice versa like i um 
When I say I need three mental health days and I sit on the couch and I smoke weed and I watch TV for three days straight, because if I don't do that, I'm going to end up in a non-recoverable state of crippling depression. The fact that you can understand exactly why that is a legitimate thing to do is very, very useful for me. Oh, yeah. Because it's... um, and I just go to my office. It's hard enough. To my cave. It's hard enough as it is without having to explain why it's hard to, and justify why it's hard to someone else. You know, like having someone that has a similar like human experience to you. Definitely. Um, I mean, it's hard in one way because we're both like terrible at keeping up with things like housework in general is a pretty sporadic thing yeah. in our household. Um, I try. So do I. And I think we both have moments of like staying on top of shit and specifically not. Got to embrace those. But like, um, I feel like we have very little consistency in our lives. True. Um, which might be different, you know, if the real like true opposites attract law applied. I swear uh, when I make enough money, we will get a person to do all this stuff. Honestly, I think... As soon as we can even just begin to afford it, we should hire a cleaner at least once a month. It's one of those things. For us, it would be so beneficial. We suck a lot. We do. And um, honestly, I would rather hire a cleaner once a month than go out for dinner every fortnight. Uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> I know, but I hate living but in a I messy understand. shit. <laughs> The thing is, I don't believe that our mess is so horrendous, but in context of this house specifically, the the house itself it just looks so bad. Since I started on this writing job, I've been way better at staying on top of housework though. Like, Because you procrastinate. <laughs> yeah, but it's actually... Um, so like I get stuck a lot at the moment because I'm doing stuff that's way harder than I'm used to doing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of useful in a way to, you know how to when do you the get dishes stuck, and stuff. Do, do you do this? Like when you get stuck on a problem, you like go and have a shower or like oh, mow the lawns or something. Oh, wash my hair. Yeah, yeah. I have an hour long shower. And then you like think of awesome shit and then you do it. But you can't like do that for three hours a day. But I can like have a shower, do the dishes and mow the lawns. And all of that time is like uninterrupted thinking time that I can like work through my, yeah. um, my issues that I'm having in my story or my work or whatever, or my favorite is to go for a drive. I try not to do it recreationally anymore because environmental reasons uh, and, and financial petrol's expensive, but, yeah. um, but like when I go for a drive, like since I started this job, I don't think I started it much more than maybe a month ago, roughly. Oh no. A couple of weeks ago, two, three. Yeah. Three weeks is almost a month, but anyway, month. um, like every time I get stuck on a major thing, either I go for a drive intentionally or I go for a drive because I have to go for a drive somewhere. But groceries, yeah. But most of the time, like provided I'm driving by myself and I can just play some music and think about shit while I'm driving, uh, I normally figure out most of my problems yeah. while I'm doing that. And it's the same with dishes or anything else, you know, like um, it's just that like I have to be doing enough to not be able to get distracted. Yeah. And I do definitely have to like drive my attention to the problem at hand because if I don't, I will think about, I don't know, like 
eventually being able to afford a good pair of noise cancelling headphones and which specific make and model I would like and for which specific reasons or whatever the fuck other useless shit I'm thinking about at the time. I'm sure everyone does this. But um, but if I actually direct my attention to the task at hand and um, not not heavily, it's kind of like meditation. It's like I'm going to put this problem on the table. I'm not necessarily going to address it, but anything else that pops to mind, I'm just kind of like gently push that away and just leave that the problem kind on of the like table. Meditation. It is, yeah. But yeah, like I can only do that like when I'm doing the dishes or. Um, Honestly, the woodworking, when I had my woodworking business was kind of good for that because like there was a lot of shit that I did that was really monotonous and uh, repetitive and kind of boring. Do you miss it at all? I do. I just couldn't afford to keep doing it. Yeah. Because basically my business was costing us more than we were making from it Mm. at the time. Um, And it was going to take me at least two more years to ROI realistically. And we would have gone bankrupt before the time that I ROI'd. Nah, I think we would have been fine, but mm. I you, think. I never really discussed that business fully, but basically I was going to have to drop. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was going to have to drop like another 20 grand on it to get to the point of being able to ROI. What? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is like I knew that was an unreasonable thing to do, so I didn't do it. Like, um Either I would have had to hire someone or I would have had to um, get some CNC machinery. There was no other way I could ROI on it yep. basically in our current situation. Mm. And I would have had to travel CNC a lot. CNC would have been nice. I would have had to buy a, um, a van for delivery uh-huh. and I would have had to do regular uh, Auckland and Wellington trips, uh. which all require capital. Yeah. Um, minimum 20 grand, but realistically closer to 50 if I wanted to do it properly. And yeah, that's, that. <laughs> and that still wouldn't have upgraded my current uh, facility that I was in, which was unlivable in the winter and the summer. It was good for like three oh, months yeah. out of the year. Um, anyway, all of that aside, um, yeah, when I was like planing away or sand, like oiling or whatever, like yeah, that was my jam. I enjoyed that. That was like meditation for me. I, uh, I really missed the wood shop and I think – you know, when we break when we break two hundred grand a year between us, I'm probably gonna set up a wood shop again. Okay. Um, because then I can just go to Lee Valley and Lee Nielsen and just buy all of the hand tools that I want. <laughs> They're so pretty. They I mean, you give zero fucks about woodworking, but, I know, but, but it's like really when you see Lee Valley and Lee Nielsen tools, you're <laughs> like I want it. <laughs> exactly. Like, so imagine, I even need it, imagine like that plus the fact that they're amazing to use. Like, they are sexy, sexy tools. I actually tools. used them. It's pretty satisfying. You've used tools that I've made too, actually. I think I've gotten you to yeah. take a few plane shavings with planes that I made by hand. Oh, and there's videos of those Japanese um, woodworkers taking like micron thin shavings. Yeah. <laughs> And they're so competitive about it, and they measure those wood I've, shavings. Um, so the thinnest shaving that I've ever taken out of wood, just a random fun fact, was zero point zero two millimeters. I don't think I can fathom that. Do you know what the the um, thickness of hair is in general? I have no like idea. Like, how does it compare to hair? Similar, I would say. Jesus. It was. Um, so at a certain point, they're thin enough that it almost looks like some sort of spider webby shit. Oh, yeah. They're pretty transparent. Oh, very transparent. You can read through them clearly. Yeah. 
Um, but that's more sharpening than anything else. Uh, sharpening. Micro adjustment. Yeah. <laughs> Micro adjustments and sharpening. Yeah, there's a little bit of skill involved. But, you know, uh, I kind of miss watching those Japanese woodworking videos. That was yeah, so Yeah, we used to get satisfying. high and watch Japanese dudes do woodworking. That was my jam. Oh, it's so hypnotic. I'm pretty sure that's how I got into woodworking in the first place. Nick. Yeah, it was Nick Offerman on Parks and Rec. I watched him do woodwork. And then I went from that and I went from that to Japanese woodworkers. And I went from that to like that wood by right ginger guy and Paul Sellers and stuff. And um, there's like a whole bunch of like woodworkers on YouTube that I followed. But like I, I think the very first thing I made was that shoe rack. I think so. That was like two and a half years ago. So. And that was kind of shit. But at the same time, the very first thing that I made was made with zero metal fasteners. It was completely joinery based, which is mental. Like nobody builds their first thing completely joinery based. But that's what I'm talking about. The fucking research Because you go to shit. fucking Ikea and you get a shoe rack for 20 bucks. To be fair, that's I only why. spent about $20 on the tools that I used to build that. Yeah, but you also built it, not just bought tools. That was pretty satisfying. Yeah. Um, that good. It's a good shoe rack. I'll probably uh, give that to my parents when we move or and something. And we we're still using it. It's functional. It can hold my weight. I can stand on top of that shoe rack. Oh, that's impressive. It's made out of old bed slats because I didn't have any uh, timber. I remember that. We had those. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, we... We Where did we get that from? Why did we have those? I think my sister got rid of that bed or something at some point and they were like, hey, do you guys want a bed frame? And then I just used the bed slats and built shit out of it. <laughs> okay. Doesn't matter, but um, I don't know. I kind of miss the woodworking. I feel like um, my life was a little bit richer as a result of woodworking. Like, I feel like it really did help with processing my mental health stuff and my ADHD. Do you think any particular aspect of woodworking that you enjoyed? It was being by myself in the shed, doing okay. physical manual labor and having a physical product at the end of it. Like, so um, I've said this many times before, but with film, I make something and it's done and I put it out there and I wait for people to give their feedback on it essentially. But even their feedback is like, you know, opinions are like assholes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but with the woodworking, it's like, right, I made a table, zero metal fasteners, and I've accounted for all wood movement. This is never going to break unless it gets like rot or something. And if it gets rot, that's going to take at least like two, three hundred years to happen. Um, I can put my whiskey glass on this table. I love these coasters. And my whiskey glass is not on the floor. So therefore, by making this table, I have achieved something. And there's something to be said about like that feeling of like I made something that's functional and it's more functional than anything I've seen in any store because not only is it functional, it will last 300 years. That's, that's a very, very satisfying feeling. And um, I feel like Disappear is one of those films that might see the test of time. 
but um overall a lot of the video work and a lot of the audio work i create i feel like it kind of gets lost in that abyss of youtube like it Mm -hmm. it reaches way more people way more quickly than a piece of furniture does but a piece of furniture exists many lifetimes beyond me and i think that's kind of cool yeah Ideally, if you make an amazing piece of film, it will also exist lifetimes beyond you. But uh, yeah, I really wonder what's the fate of video is in terms of history. I don't know, like because when I had my because Budapest video apartment, is essentially the same thing as writing was. My second apartment many, many in Budapest before. had furniture in it that was from the 1700s. Jesus, that's 300 years old. And Aaron. Balanced the chair on his chin. Oh, yeah. That was my birthday, I think. He got drunk and Aaron is an ex um, <laughs> circus guy and he balanced a chair that was at least 300 years old on his chin while drunk off his tits. You know, the age of the chair is not the, but it the makes, big thing about it. makes for a fun story, but you know. But that chair was fucking heavy and... This is, this is part of my job, though. Part of my job is not to be like, oh, a guy balanced a chair on his chin. The He's end. 300 it's years like, old and like 20. So my friend who was a member of Ringling Circus balanced a chair on his chin in honor of my birthday. The chair was 300 years old and he decided... He was going to balance it and not drop it and not destroy it. You know, like it's, uh, you got to add drama to the story. I um, remember that night. It was good. It was a good night. But um, he was so nice to me. But I get way more satisfaction out of making a good film than I do a good piece of furniture. It's just a lot okay. more time and a lot more mental energy to achieve it, I guess. You know, if somebody pays you for it. Nobody's paying me for it. Not yet. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like I, um, for the longest time, I was obsessed with having my breakthrough at like 23, 24, 25, 26, 27. I got to make my first feature before 27. I'm not even really concerned about making my first feature film anymore. Full stop. Like I've kind of taken a step back and just been like, right. I just got to get good at doing shit. And the only way I'm going to get good at doing shit is doing it regularly. Doing shit as in doing shit in general or? No, nah, like writing. Like, okay. I feel pretty confident as a director, um, more so as a technical director than a dramatic director. Like mm-hmm. I haven't spent a lot of time working with actors, if I'm going to be completely honest. But as a technical director, provided I have enough pre-production time, I can totally nail that shit. Like I, I have enough technical knowledge to direct technically at a very, very, very competent level. Oh, good for you. Um, I definitely need to work on my directing actors skills, but I feel like um, if you hire good enough actors, that's can be mitigated to an extent. But um, yeah, it's writing. So like, if I'm going to make my first feature film, I've been looking for a script for a long time. From people who send you scripts or something? Yeah, like I'll put like calls out for scripts or whatever or look at what's available on the script market and stuff. But um, basically most of the stuff that I find that I can afford, key point, um, 
there's a lot of really good writers out there that need some direction. And either I can spend 12 months directing another writer through a rewrite for their script to get it up to the point where it's going to be good enough for both of us to have a career breakthrough. Or I can buckle down myself and have the work ethic and work for 12 months by myself on my own piece of writing and own what I do outright. I mean, option B is way more work. Which one would you prefer? Um, prefer is a relative term. I think like, I'm sure. I don't know. I am leaning towards option B now because. So you write it. So like love or hate Gary V. He, um, Gary Vaynerchuk. He, um, he said one thing that really fucking stuck with me, which is pretty much like if shit's not working, you suck and you need to work on it and you need to hold yourself accountable. Thanks. And it's like, yeah, like kind of. Yeah. The more people you collaborate with, the easier it is to blame someone else for you not getting where you want to get. Anyway. Yeah. So if I take on the writing job and it's not working, the only person I have to blame for that is myself. And basically I have two options at that point. Either I can give up and um, pivot or I can buckle the fuck down and push through it and do something good. But at the end of the day, all of the failure is on me, but also all of the success if I push through at the end of the day is for me. Okay. Um, and I feel like the more people like, because film is such a collaborative process, the more people you bring on early on, the more watered down the whole like experience becomes a little bit. It like, it becomes so easy to be like, this is your job. This is my job. If this isn't working, is this really my fault? You know, like, but I feel like feeling that level of accountability for the um, work that you're doing is kind of useful. It's like, it's, it's very humbling, I guess. Cause like, it's easy for me to be, you know, I can hire a writer and be like, oh, this is shit. This doesn't feel genuine. Like write it again, write it again, write it again. (laughs) But until I'm actually giving myself those notes. And I think that's the trick. Like I'm capable of giving myself those notes um, as much as I'm capable of giving anyone else those notes. Not everybody else is like people fall in love with their own work, but I'm very much my own worst critic. No, that makes sense. Um, detrimentally so sometimes, but I, I generally get the third party perspective That's once I get too curve. deep. Um, I feel like I'm coming out on the right end of that learning yeah. curve right about now. It's mm-hmm. taken me a long time to get there, but um, it's kind of nice to have full control of the ship that you're sailing, you know, like um, to not be at the mercy of anyone else. Like That is why I'm interested in photography. I think the thing is though, like, because as soon as you have someone else on board, you can't hold them to any specific standards unless you're paying them as well. I mean, you should pay them regardless, but. Yeah, but if it's a collaborative process, yeah. so like if I'm like, if you write the script, I will direct it and we will find a producer and we will both get paid. 
Like you are equal at that point, like 100% equal in the point of collaboration. Um, but no one's getting any money until it gets to a point where it's good enough to make money. But as a director, I'm still like, hey, fuck you. This is not good enough. Keep going. Um, and that's really hard to say when you're not actively giving someone money. And if they're not living up to your performance standards, you can't fire them because they're not getting paid. Like yeah. there's co-ownership issues. Like it's a, it's a real problem. Uh, I'm glad that my job is relatively simple. That's the thing. Like I kind of wish I could do jobs that have a one week turnaround or less. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I feel like the level of satisfaction that you get from pulling off a job that's taken you two years plus to complete, like in the case of a film, like a feature film, probably like five years plus to complete, like the satisfaction that you get from pulling that off and it not being a colossal piece of shit is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't had the pleasure to experience that, but I can kind of... Yeah, I can kind of understand. I don't know if the pleasure of experiencing that is worth the stress, but um, this is how I live my life. (laughs) (laughs) I have accepted that this is my life now. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still coping with uh, accepting that my life became a mess due to being a freelancer. Uh, I think for you more so than for me because you have such short turnarounds it's more a case of the golden handcuffs it's like we will pay you ridiculous amounts of money to do shit but you must be available 24-7 365 days a week because I thought I was done with work for this month and then I got the biggest project of my life the thing is like you thought you were done you were all booked out for the month And then you get one job that makes up 20% of your annual income (laughs) and you have two weeks to do it. It's pretty good though. Oh, for sure. But that's what I'm saying. It's like the golden handcuffs, you know, like you can't leave the house for more than four days at a time or else you are fucked. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Which is fine. Like, I reckon that's the thing though, like. I I'm feel gonna like be a nervous wreck. This is something that we have to accept though. Like this is the lives that we have chosen. Like and and the thing is like you and I have both chosen very different, but in a way similar careers. Yeah. Like they're both ridiculously difficult, um, unreasonable, and take a long time to ROI in any sort of like reasonable way. But at the same time, would you really want to be doing anything else? No, sir. Exactly. And that's right. I love it. And I'm good at it. So. Yeah. And it's good to know that you're good at it and you'll get better at it. And I got to a point where I can say that, oh yeah, I'm good at it. Like, I don't think I'm being, I don't know what the word for it, for it is, but I think I'm being humble enough but I also acknowledge my achievements and I'm, I'm feeling pretty proud of it. And it took a lot of... It's good to feel some pride in your work. And I think that brings us full circle to uh, the difference between pride and uh, performance yeah. anxiety, you know, like finding that healthy it balance. It is still there. But you got to have hunger. I think the main thing for both of us is to never to lose our hunger. Oh, I'm so hungry. Because as soon as you lose your hunger, you're fucked. Yeah. No, I'm good. I think I'm I'm on the right path. 
I feel like this is a pretty good point to end the podcast. We're at two and a half hours right now. Oh my God. Time flies, huh? So that's why I need to pee so bad. <laughs> yeah, me too. Speaking of, um, yeah, this is uh, this week. Yeah, it is. All right. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. We'll have to do this again sometime. It's kind of good to be able to oh, talk about. Um, Just catch up occasionally. Like most of the time this uh, podcast is me doing sort of like it's not really investigative journalism. It's it's more just like explorative stuff. Like I explore other people's worlds, but this is a kind of a way for us to um, introspect more so. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's yeah, kind of fun. because we live in each other's world. Yeah, we have a very similar career. Yeah. Alrighty. Until next time. <laughs>